0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Facing tough midterm elections with control of Congress at stake, the president has turned up the rhetoric on immigration. The president has falsely blamed Democrats for the latest caravan from Central America. He said on Twitter the Democratic Party would rather protect criminal aliens than American citizens. The president has also offered no evidence of his assertion that Middle Easterners were in the caravan. We're going to talk about the reality of what's happening now with Oscar Chacon. He is co-founder and executive director of Alianza America, and he's uh, currently in El Salvador. Thanks for joining us, Asher Chacon.
1: Pleasure to be with you, Jerome.
0: Um, The president has done so many, has said so many outrageous things about this caravan and immigration already um, what do you make of that is is there a rhetoric war that he is just blasting away at uh what, what's the what what is that um, productive
1: well the first thing to say is that the president is keeping up his you know very well-known hate of, for foreign nationals he has made no secret about that from the very beginning of his you know announcement that he was going to run for president and he's clearly using this caravan, which is essentially, you know, representative of a large humanitarian crisis happening in Central American countries, to basically boost his appeal to voters who may be a scared of immigrants uh, in general. And he's clearly using it to mobilize people in light of the November 6th election. The reality is that everything the president has said for the most part, including his totally baseless accusation, but there are, you know, people from the Middle East and there are terrorists coming to the caravan. It's simply ridiculous and totally unfounded.
0: Uh, what The caravan, though, will kind of tell a tale with pictures, won't it? I mean, it'll be splashed across the televisions. People will get scared of this um, group of people. It looks like the people who are moving into Europe. Does does the president win on pictures?
1: Well, I'm afraid that the the president clearly seems to have the upper hand simply because there is no counter-narrative. Uh, it is sad to see that nobody, you know, not the Democratic Party, not other entities are actually in a position to put forward a, a potent narrative that demystifies and debunks you the way in which the president is actually manipulating this event, which is, as I said, I mean, essentially nothing to be so overtly alarmed about it. Uh, if you really look at the data over the past 10 years, it is very consistent, uh, consistently showing that there has been increasing numbers, especially of Honduran nationals, trying to find safety, safety in the U.S., And this caravan only changes the previous equation in the way in which they actually came out collectively, trying to depart from Honduras. And, of course, many Hondurans that were in the way already have actually added themselves, you know, to the caravan. But, again, it is not anything at all that we could really call, you know, an overwhelming wave of people coming from Honduras to the U.S., The sad thing, again, I insist, I mean, is the lack of alternative narrative that can actually counter effectively what the president is doing. Um,
0: Why is there this lack of an alternative narrative? Um, If if this is not the reality, isn't just a, a narrative of what is really happening, why wouldn't that be good enough?
1: Well, I mean, I I think that if you really look hard, uh, one would expect, for example, the Democratic Party leadership to have a very well-crafted understanding of what is happening in terms of migration, especially in the corridor we are part of, namely the corridor linking Central American countries, Mexico and the U.S., and understand that many of the actions that we have taken, especially in the foreign policy arena, are actually coming home, you know, to bite us uh, because in many ways the U.S. government decisions going back to 2009 with the support given to a coup d'etat and then the legitimizing of our presidency that did not really win the elections in Honduras, all are adding up to an environment in Honduras that is simply causing desperation. And nobody has dared to actually put that very clearly on the table and to point to the fact that what we owe these people are actually protection in the form of humanitarian ways of dealing with what is in reality a very serious crisis of governance, of poverty, of uh, simply lack of safety that is placing Honduras as one of the most violent countries in the world. So that is the kind of narrative that I just don't see in a very coherent, potent manner being put out to essentially debunk and demystify all the lies that are being said, mainly by you know President Trump.
0: I mentioned before we got you on that um, we were facing uh, a situation where Donald Trump is Uh, threatened budget cuts, uh, aid cuts to the Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador countries, uh, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, Do you think the president will follow through on that?
1: Well, if he does, and I honestly hope he doesn't, uh, he will simply be making something bad into something a lot worse. Because the bottom line is U.S. government aid to Central American countries has indeed increased going back to essentially 2013-2012, uh, when there was already indication that there were increasing numbers of people coming upward north to the U.S. Uh, most of that aid, sadly, has not really gone to create opportunity in countries like Honduras. To the contrary, it's going to create, you know, a stronger militaries, stronger police that don't seem to be accountable to anybody. And if the aid is cut... Number one, I believe there will only be more chaos, you know, in these countries, and more chaos only leads to more people wanting to live out of desperation. So again, I think that once the president has an opportunity to sit down with his advisors, he will come to realize that such an offer, such a threat, it's simply a classical case of shooting oneself in the foot.
0: I'm talking with Oscar Chacon. He is co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas. And we're talking about the displacement in Central America of people and the caravan that is coming across Mexico. I wonder if you could uh, share your thoughts on the decision Mexico makes in this place. Um, there were some thoughts that um, Mexico could offer asylum to these people. The president wanted Mexico to offer asylum to these, these people. And it sounds like the new incoming administration in Mexico uh, vetoed that idea. What's going on there?
1: Well, I mean, what you have, Jerome, is a situation that is classical of a, gov- of a country uh, whose federal government is about to change. Uh, we will have a new administration coming December 1st. And that administration has wanted from day one to establish some differences in the way they will relate you know, to the U.S. government, particularly on matters of regional migration. I saw yesterday, actually happily so, that the incoming president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, was basically pointing out that the solution is not necessarily to simply stop people, arrest them, and deport them, but that the solution lies more on the ability of Mexico working together with the U.S. and many other international allies to help begin, at the very least, an honest effort to make Honduras a country where Hondurans, the majority of them, feel at least confident that there is a planning motion to make their country better.
0: Talking with uh, Oscar Chacon of Alianza Americas, I wanted to ask you about when the caravan gets to the Mexico border um, and the U.S. has a decision to make about asylum. What, What do you think would happen?
1: Well, I mean, it's hard to predict with great deal of certainty. But what I can say is that what the president has so far said is only one side of the story there will be pressure as people recognize that this is a humanitarian situation that requires that we actually follow international humanitarian law and so i do not discard the possibility that some of these people that are traveling perhaps not every one of them but a good number of them are people with credible claims when it comes to filing for political asylum which is a right people have you know the fact that people may not necessarily want to do so for multiple reasons. In the case of Mexico, it doesn't mean, mean that people will not be able to do so once they arrive to the U.S. southern border. So, again, I think that what the president is trying to do is to discourage people from ever getting there. But once they get there, as I said, it's hard to imagine what the ultimate outcome
0: is going to be. Oscar, you're in El Salvador. What does this thing look like from there? How, do, how does it play there? Do people talk about this?
1: Well, you know, it depends what, who are you talking about? Because in as far as governments, they are very nervous. They are very aware that this caravan and the rumors that there may be more caravans organizing in countries like El Salvador and Guatemala, again, makes governments just fearful that they may indeed find themselves in great tension, you know, with the Trump administration over this matter. If you look at it from the civil society perspective, people are simply coming to realize that the rules that are in place, the rules that are supposed to regulate, you know, how people leave one country to go to another are in desperate need for a mayor overhaul, including the way we provide people in danger with humanitarian protection. So I think that there will be definitely more consequences coming out of this particular episode. And I believe that in the end, what comes clearly to the mind of everybody is that Central American countries have an obligation, not just government, but everybody, the private sector, civil society, people themselves, to figure out how we are going to actually get working on an effort to make countries like Honduras places that are able to provide a hopeful way of life to people so that nobody necessarily sees in leaving the country the only solution they have.
0: Oscar Chacon is co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas, an umbrella organization of U.S. immigrant aid-led organizations. And thanks a lot for joining us from El Salvador and talking about the situation there. Um, Have a good trip home. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the latest developments in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WVEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. We'll be talking about the Jamal Khashoggi uh, situation in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to get an update on Bookwala from its founder and CEO, Sina Jacob. Bookwala means book peddler in Hindi, and it provides books and establishes libraries for orphans in India and elsewhere. It's great to see you, Sina.
2: Hi, Jerome. Nice to see you, too.
0: Tell me a bit about Bookwalla and why you decided to do this. You are not... In the NGO starting business, you were an executive type, <laughs> and you started this organization.
2: Yes. Um, just to give a, a little bit of background of who I am, I was born in India, in Kerala, and came here as a young child, an immigrant, <laughs> because of further opportunities here in the United States, went back for further studies, reconnected with my roots. But when I got back, I ended up doing the U.S. equivalent, my MBA, um, went into banking, consulting, working on business plans. But at the end of 2009, 2010, I started to really do some soul searching and uh, discovered that ultimately, in the end, I want to make sure that whatever it is I experience in life, by the end of my life, I could say, yes, I fulfilled my life's purpose. And uh, to make a long story short, the U.S. libraries and accessing the beautiful storybooks, The Beauty and the Beast, The Cinderellas, Chronicles of Narnia, Little House on the Prairie, all these books actually helped me Get through childhood hardship and trauma in my own life, and I wanted to share that power and joy to other children throughout the world or orphans around the world um, with the power and magic of storybooks.
0: That's a great impetus because I don't. I think people underestimate what books can do in the lives of a child. It is really powerful and it's it is life changing.
2: Absolutely. Uh, when I started the organization, I didn't really know what I was getting into, <laughs> other than the fact that I knew that it had this amazing healing aspect because every story has that hero's journey, that hero's struggle. And somebody is overcoming, a character is overcoming something to come out in the end stronger, confident, with integrity, passion, following through. And uh, when I start to actually work with orphan children, I had heard that we should be measuring literacy. Uh, It's all about that. And discovered, ultimately, in the end, that there was a problem in terms of how they process information, behavioral issues, brain development. Those are some of the impacts of trauma on children. And the literacy approach was great as a secondary impact, but we went back to their roots. Why did we start BookWall in the first place? Which is really to help heal these children through these powerful, representative, inspirational characters and role models. Can you take
0: us to a Book Wallet program that you've started and uh, walk us through what it's like and what happens for, for children?
2: Sure. Uh, one of the first things we do, of course, is work with U.S. kids here as part of their global philanthropy and getting involved in the global community. So we have wonderful schools that partner with us. So an uh, example is the Wilmette Community Nursery School that provided books. They provide beautiful cards for these children. Uh, schools like Catherine Cook School, uh, et cetera. They're all part of that initial supply of books. On the other side of the ocean or other side of the world, we work with orphanages where they sign an MOU and we transform these spaces into magical environments with artwork, open bookshelves, very non-traditional, but it's very important part of the healing process.
0: So, so they're brightly painted. The, the pictures on your website are really fun. They look like really fun places.
2: Exactly. And that's kind of part of the science behind it, too. The healing aspect is making sure that kids feel safe and happy in an environment that they're in. And the third component, the most critical, is the fairy godmothers, our, our volunteer force. So we recruit local volunteers to go in weekly and conduct storytelling sessions. But it's more than just reading a story aloud. We try to bring that experience in library to life by taking, for example, Beauty and the Beast, reading that story, and discussing the moral of that story. Is it inner beauty? Outer beauty? What's important? And then an actual activity around that aspect, such as it could be friendship rings, it could be Beauty and the Beast, Beast movie. I hope that makes sense. A skit and... In the process, it kind of inculcates that value because the children are actually experiencing it and listening to it and experience it with their volunteers.
0: We're talking about the organization Bookwala with founder and CEO Sina Jacob. Bookwala means uh, book peddler in Hindi, and they provide books and established libraries and orphanages in India and elsewhere. So now do you have some data on the psychology aspect of this, that that it um, is a thing?
2: Yeah. So, again, when we looked at what was going on with the kids, I knew firsthand uh, that books have that amazing power to heal and transform. But can we collect that data From the children we're actually serving, the relationships that we're building with these children who are in these orphanages, sometimes very long term. And uh, last year, we piloted a quantitative study, and more recently, a narrative assessment or study with the help of Dr. Graciela Solis, Diana Costa from Loyola University, and my team of volunteer psychologists abroad. And during this narrative assessment, we actually Ask the children, what is it that they learned about? And we test the frequency of positive words, uh, hope talk, empathy talk, pro-social conduct, and positive talk. And we discovered in our first pilot that obviously with the right storybook, we're able to actually drive some of those Uh, behaviors and mindset or change in consciousness. And so every three months moving forward, we're going to retest and see how this actually applies or goes.
0: That's fascinating. Um, Tell us about more about an actual library. Uh, Tell us about one that got established that and... and is, is working like this.
2: Okay, I'll give you an example. It's Snea Sudden. It's a little girl's library. Uh, most of the kids or most of the girls there have been um, either from the streets, they've been rescued from the streets, abandoned by the uh, single parent, uh, sexually abused, mentally abused. Uh, you know, uh, those are some of the, backgr- the background of those kids. And one of the girls, I'll give you an example, one of the children, her name is Roshni, and she was actually sexually abused by her own father. And when we initially started our reading sessions a few years back in this new library, uh, she was angry, distrustful, disruptive, all of these things. But soon after, about six months, nine months after, our project leader received a beautiful thank-you card with ducks in the water and a duck flying in the air. And when Roshni was asked, "Why is this you know, why did you give this?" Um, her response was, "Before I was in the river, and now sometimes I could fly." And so that's that amazing healing power of girls just like her. And today she's about 16 years old, and she is in a place where she knows that by the time she's 18, she's empowered and can be anything, do anything she wants. And that's the amazing magic of what we do.
0: We're talking about the organization Bukwala with Sina Jacob, the founder. Coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about the uh, Khashoggi affair, and we'll discuss the latest on that. Um where do you how how much of has Book Walla grown over the years? You know, I know you're you're fanning out to different places um, what's the status
2: The status is uh started with an idea. And uh, had the ambitions to help globally, uh, so we had visited initially, story, uh, provided storybooks to in uh, Indonesia, India, Jamaica, Sri Lanka, and then really rediscovered the on-ground challenges to sustain these projects. And so today we have about sixteen to seventeen libraries within India. But in certain situations, like the Rohingya refugees, those kids, and I was there just this past December, uh, those children desperately need inspiring stories, inspiring books, because of what they have witnessed and what they've gone through. And so when I was actually on the ground, we also provided those storybooks. There's more of a need, and uh, that's a country that— So uh, you were in Bangladesh? In Bangladesh, in Cox's Bazar, on the border of Myanmar and Bangladesh. And so I think a lot of that has been covered in the news. Yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah, and yeah. so you want to you want to start a a situation there. I mean, exactly. Then, hopefully so that's a temporary situation, but a, it seems permanent. Yeah, right. In many regards,
2: I don't think you know. One of the uh, I had actually sat with a mother and a child in one of their little shacks, and I asked you know what is your greatest wish for your children? There was a surviving child with her. And I actually thought she was going to say, I wish he could be a doctor or, or he could be an engineer or something of that sort. And instead, she said, my wish is not to go back. It was just as simple as that. And so the more books that we can provide these kids, the social emotional aspect of this will really empower them to get past some of the trauma that they've experienced.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, that schools and other groups partner with you and you, you help out specific places and get to know people on the other side of the world. Um, how do how are there other ways people can get involved? How do people get involved in Bookwala?
2: Actually, here in the United States, uh, we need lots of help in terms of skills. So, from everything from marketing to development to fundraising, uh, administrative. So, even from an intern perspective, if there's uh, college students who want to get involved in international projects, international project management, they could do that. Uh, schools participate in our Bookwala Buddy program where they provide the storybooks as well as uh, the letters and uh, cards, et cetera.
0: Now, your annual uh, Dream Launcher fundraiser is coming up?
2: Yes. It's actually going to be in two days, October 25th, uh, 6 p.m., and generously, Tom Steeman of Arc Historic Products has donated his private space for this event. So that's fantastic. But we have a special guest author, Josh Schneider, who's a winner of the Dr. Seuss Award for one of his books. Our hosts, Chaitan and Karen Guy, have hosted Dream Launcher uh, since 2011, our first fundraiser. But there's several people I'd like to thank, and specifically even some of the team members in India, Tanisha Charles. Thanme Tondal and Vandana Parik, who are very dedicated volunteers for at least a couple years or so. So I wanted to bring them to light, too, and just say thank you so much, because without inspirational role models, we would not be here today.
0: So there is uh, more information on the bookwalla.org website about the Bookwalla Gala that's exactly. Up. So just can, go to the you, website if you want to go Thursday night. You could go meet everybody involved. Yes, that would be fun. Yes. Now um, your segment uh, Bookwalla was originally suggested to us by a friend of ours, uh, Ed Kramer, who was like family around the station. He was a long time volunteer. I don't know how long. I, I maybe. Um, in the early 2000s? 17 years. 17 years. And um, he is uh, the father of your partner, Randall Kramer, who's here with us. And we thought we'd just take a moment and say a few words about Ed Kramer. Uh, He passed just before his 90th birthday recently and uh, was such a beloved figure around here. Hey, Randall, how are you? Good, Jerome. How are you today? Good. Uh, We had an event uh, for your father here at the station. It was Uh, wonderful. a, A lot of happy memories about your father. And he was such a great character, and he really uh, embodied a lot of things about the spirit of of volunteering and the station and just an exuberance for life. We loved this guy. He was just a wonderful guy, Randall.
3: Thanks, Jerome. He, um, He felt that WBZ was like his second home, and often the time that he spent here was as meaningful as other things I think my father did in his life. One of the things that is... A blessing for me is to come to the station today and to hear different people uh, mention things about my father. I introduce myself as Ed's son or you know Randall kramer the son of Eddie, and uh, suddenly I get this like warm smile and warm uh, effusive response from everybody here at the station, so I can tell that he really left a great uh, a great mark here and
0: yeah, we all became fast friends with him, and uh, I th- and he volunteered at other organizations too. He was he was like a um, a serial volunteer in in many ways. And uh, he loved showing off
3: the city. He was a docent for the uh, Chicago, um, what was it called? The Chicago Greeters program through the Cultural Center. Yep. And he uh, did
0: the Federal Reserve. He did tours of the Federal Reserve. Correct. Correct. And uh, there was just uh, a lot of spirit there.
3: But I think one of the things that was so wonderful about Sina and her association with my father is that his love of her and his support of Sina is what led him to endorse her for getting introduced to you and to Steve Bynum and to being a part of uh, your worldview show?
2: Yeah. May I add one sure. other thing? Uh, I was in India recently, and one of our older volunteers said, I'm so sorry to hear Ed Kramer died because she personally was able to. She told me, I, you could tell the nature, the character of that man by the way he responded to our Facebook posts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ed, Ed was an inspiration to me uh, from a, from, uh, you know, uh, digital standpoint, he was the most aggressive. Uh, you know, I went to him for advice on digital matters. It was, uh, you know, That's I'm a cool. guy who's 30 years older than me to, to, to explain how to store my passwords and stuff, and and he did have advice, and he did know what he was doing, and. Um, he was a very exuberant uh, presence there on Facebook with, with – uh, I'm sure your folks were – we've got a little – like um, our, our awards area has become a little um, Ed Kramer shrine out there. We've got Another his, we got his volunteer thing. award from 2004. Uh, there's this – his walking <laughs> stick his walking is there. It. His back, his pack is there. So um, he is, is well-loved, and, and it was great to have him uh, all these years, and we'll have nothing but good memories of him for forever. Thanks, John. Well, it's great to see you, Randall Kramer, and uh, you should come around once in a while, too. Yeah, <laughs> I like it here. I think he's ready to volunteer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Continue the legacy.
0: And Cena Jacob uh, from Bukwala, uh, her celebration is Thursday night at the Ark Historic Products in Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good to see you both, and we'll see you again soon in the future.
2: Thank you, Jerome. Thank you, Jerome.
0: Coming up after the break, we will talk about the Jamal Khashoggi affair and find out all the latest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Erdogan's widely anticipated address on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi didn't offer any bombshells, but it did advance the case that the murder was premeditated and not the result of a fistfight, as the Saudis have claimed. The latest uh, of the day's bombshells has to do with the possible discovery of Jamal Khashoggi's body in the garden of the Saudi consul general's residence. This is according to a report from Sky News. I haven't seen it widely reported elsewhere, but um, there are some details in it that um, are interesting to read. Also, uh, at Saudi Arabia's Davos in the Desert events, uh, the crown prince made an unannounced uh, appearance and he drew a standing ovation. We're going to talk about the implications of the Khashoggi murder with Trita Parsi, author of Losing an Enemy, about the Iran nuclear deal. Thanks for joining us, Trita Parsi. I want to ask you about uh, Turkey and the way Turkey has been handling this. And they've been dri- drip-grabbing out these leaks and you know maybe even having to do with the, the, his body now. But um, what do you think they're trying to achieve? They're very close with Qatar, the um, rival to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's got a campaign against them. Um, is there something going on that you think Turkey is going to want out of this?
4: Turkey is going to want quite a lot out of this. And I think to a certain extent they have already gotten quite a lot out of it. We have to keep in mind Jamal Khashoggi, Uh, earlier was a sympathizer of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the same orientation um, uh, of the type of Islamist that uh, Erdogan himself is. He knew Jamal Khashoggi. And Saudi Arabia, even though earlier on they had uh, rather interesting, if not warm, relations with the Muslim Brotherhood, have as of late turned against them, viewing them as uh, a a political threat. And uh, this struggle uh, within Uh, the Middle East, between these different orientations have been taking place for quite some time now. We saw how the Muslim Brotherhood's leaders won the elections in Egypt, and later on they were overthrown by the uh, Morsi Sorry, the Sisi um, uh, coup in Egypt, which was funded by the Saudis. And Morsi, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who had first won the elections, was very close to the Erdogan government. So there's a competition going on between these two countries. And now we see that the Saudis have committed a major crime, uh, which in addition to being a crime also was a significant mistake because they got caught. And the Turks clearly have a tremendous amount of details, and they are now... Taking advantage of that in order to isolate, punish the Saudis, uh, particularly the Crown Prince, uh, and try to exact quite a lot of concessions from. Uh, the Saudis. We are not clear yet exactly what those concessions will end up being.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think it through, though. I mean, they could open the land route to Qatar. That would seem to be a concession. There, there could be something like um, maybe the president of Turkey thinks that he can force the crown prince from power or, or from ascending to power in the in the kingdom.
4: That certainly are options. I. The latter is perhaps something more to the liking of Erdogan than just asking for Qatar's blockade to be ended. That would be, uh, I think, uh, in the grander scheme of things, a relatively small concession for the Saudis to accept, mindful of the tremendous disaster that they're faced with right now. I mean, this could potentially be a threat not only to the crown prince, but to the king himself.
0: Um, it, it, you know, how, how does it come to this? I mean, this is the murder of one person. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been involved in a string of incidents uh, from Qatar to the war in Yemen uh, to the fracas with Canada over a tweet. It's been one thing after another. How did this capture everyone's um, imagination here and really, really change the entire perception about Saudi Arabia?
4: You are quite right, because the list of foreign policy debacles and crimes that the conference is responsible for, and the Saudi government as a whole, is a long one. You have the kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister. You have the ongoing war in Yemen in which the Saudis are engineering a famine. um, 10,000 people have already died there. You have um, uh, the arrest of several of the conference's own cousins. Uh, and, of course, the blockade of Qatar. Quite a lot has been going on, and one can perhaps think that the Crown Prince thought that, well, killing one more journalist is not going to create any difficulty. None of these other things have had any major backlashes. But I think the difference here was a couple of things. First of all, this was a Washington Post columnist, So the media in the United States did not have the same option of ignoring it as they could have ignored, and did ignore, quite a lot of these other things. Moreover, I think... There is a tremendous amount of pent-up anger against Saudi Arabia because of the very, the many, many negative things that it's been doing and has managed to get away with because of the amount of money that it spends on lobbyists and PR uh, uh, agents in Washington, D.C. At some point, something was going to break the camel's back, and I think that point was reached with Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder.
0: Well, the United States has said it doesn't want to jeopardize its arms sales. Other countries seem to be mulling it over differently. Germany says it doesn't want any new arm sales and is uh, but is going to make good in the present ones. The Canadians seem to be mulling it over um I would think that they, they with uh, the the fracas over their their tweet they they might have a little more impetus to cut off arm sales but is that a bottom line we should look for or is that expect
4: um I think it is quite preposterous to continue this relationship uh mindful of everything the Saudis are doing, including, and most importantly, the war crimes that are taking place right now in Yemen with the help of the United States, with American weaponry. Moreover, these arms sales are not at all as great as uh, Donald Trump has been claiming. Uh, And the idea that the Saudis have options in the sense that they can go elsewhere is also quite a bit exaggerated. First of all, it's going to be very costly and time-consuming for them to shift away from the American weaponry system. But more importantly, they're buying these American weapons, not necessarily because they know how to use them or that they can even use all of them. It's because they think that buying American weapons gets them an implicit security guarantee from the United States. So that the United States is more or less compelled to protect and defend the House of Saud. Even if the Saudis were to go and buy these weapons from the Russians and the Chinese, the Russians and the Chinese are not going to offer any explicit or implicit security guarantees to the Saudis. They're simply not going to get what they think they're getting by buying it from the United States. The U.S. actually has a tremendous amount of leverage over Saudi Arabia. It has used almost none of it. And if it started to use some of that leverage, I am quite confident that we would be able to see some significant shifts in Saudi behavior, which would be quite beneficial to the region as a whole, mindful of the way that the Saudis have been destabilizing the region.
0: I'm talking with Trita Parsi. His most recent book is Losing an Enemy, Obama-Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy about the Iran nuclear deal. Um, The United States... uh has a lot of connections to saudi arabia and we just saw this uh, davos in the desert event today the crown prince came he got a standing ovation from the people who had who did come and it was an interesting array of people that stuck it out there seems to be as long a list of the dropouts as the people who stuck it out but people from uh, mckinsey bain six flags pepsi um, Russian investors uh, all sorts of people SoftBank, they all stuck it out and went to the the Davos conference um, does, does he still, are the Saudis just going to be able to manage to have uh, significant support because of their connections their money, their investments uh, Silicon Valley has been um, awash with Saudi money Well, they
4: have managed To overcome these type of things or in fact make sure that there's no scandals at all when they have done things similar or much worse than this so um, that is definitely the case in the past but at the same time we have never seen before the type of reaction the type of anger that is now coming out as a result of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi so it seems like something very dramatic uh, and important has changed here I personally don't believe that the Saudis are going to be able to go about this as if nothing has happened. There's going to have to be massive changes. Uh, And there's also going to be shifts. Uh, I think many countries are realizing that Saudi Arabia is not at all as stable as they may have thought. As a result, you may not want to be completely dependent on the Saudis when it comes to your uh, imports of oil may not only want to side with them on some of the geopolitical battles in the region because it's not clear at all that they're on the winning side. So something very uh, important has already happened. How far it will go remains to be seen.
0: One of the things that um, some people are writing that the U.S. Middle East policy is on the rocks because of all this, that uh, the U.S. was very uh, Saudi-oriented when it came to a number of things, the relations with Iran, the uh, Middle East peace process, uh, the Trump administration had strongly taken uh, the side of Saudi Arabia and lots of things. Um, what – what – what where does the U.S. go from here? And on November 5th, they're going to increase the sanctions on Iran and paint the picture that Iran um, is is a big problem here, and the world is looking at it in a, probably a different light now.
4: Oh, certainly. And, and without a doubt, the United States has many problems with Iran, many of them unresolved. Uh, but what has happened here is that The Obama administration struck a nuclear deal, diplomatically reached an agreement that prevented Iran from getting nuclear weapons, but also made sure that there was a way now, a channel between the US and Iran in which its problems with Iranians could be addressed diplomatically and resolved. The nuclear issue at the end of the day was one of the toughest issues. If that one could be resolved diplomatically, certainly there's a decent chance that the other issues could be handled diplomatically as well. The Saudis were very much against the deal for a very simple reason. They realized that part of the reason why Obama looked at this deal favorably was because it enabled the United States to be less dependent on Saudi Arabia. It increased American maneuverability in the region. Trump came in, walked out of the deal, is trying to kill the deal, and by that he's actually made the U.S. more dependent on Saudi Arabia. Uh, And right now, for instance, going forward with the sanctions on November 5th, Uh, is going to have a major impact on oil prices. We've already seen how oil prices have gone up. The reason is because Trump is trying to make sure that Iran cannot sell any oil at all. Well, the only two countries that can replace Iranian oil on the market is Saudi Arabia, and it seems like they're incapable of replacing it all. And the other country is Russia. These are two countries now that are gaining leverage as a result of the Trump administration. Uh, returning to a position of confrontation with Iran instead of continuing on the path of diplomacy. Um, and as a result, the US has actually lost a lot of its maneuverability and the leverage that it has gained as a result of the nuclear deal.
0: Well, is the U.S. in so deep? I mean, the U.S. isn't going to change its policy, though. They're going to go ahead, and contradictions don't really bother the Trump administration much, so they'll plow ahead with this policy on November 5th and do some sanctions. We'll see what happens, oil prices.
4: Well, um, it's quite unlikely that the Trump administration is going to shift by its own volition, but the prospects of it being able to be successful with this policy now when more and more countries are very uneasy about uh, going along with some sort of business as usual with Saudi Arabia. The prospects of success for that policy has now uh, decreased quite significantly, I would say, and I think the risk of much higher oil prices is going to be uh, quite a reality, and that's going to have a very negative effect on the American economy. That, I think, Trump will be forced to care about. So there's a likelihood, perhaps not that significant at this point, but nevertheless, that Trump may be forced to change his policy, uh, not necessarily out of his own volition, though, but because of the fact that it's simply not sustainable. This policy of relying so much on Saudi Arabia and doubling down on them under these circumstances is really detrimental to U.S. national interests.
0: Trita Parsi is the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Thanks for joining us and talking about the Khashoggi Affair.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to have our Global Notes segment where we talk about international music. And we'll be talking with um, someone, an Indian-American, who's become an incredibly popular Bollywood singer And we'll chat with her about her story, a Chicagoan who's now famous in Bollywood. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco as well. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.